0: and salutations friends and welcome back to the arcade we are your video game podcast here with you for the first time in the month of june how's it going ladies and gentlemen boys and girls children of all ages i'm mike the legend who's so glad to be back with you once again as we were away last week that's fine because we are back together once again and being together is all that really matters isn't it
1: that's definitely true and uh this week as I am every week, I'm Dennis, but this week I'm Dennis, the man who fully appreciates that winter is truly over, but also
0: recognizes that the sun is not his friend. <laughs> yes, by virtue of being in the month of June, we are now firmly entrenched in our uh, summer season. Uh, if you are listening to us from perhaps the Southern Hemisphere, uh, perhaps Australia, not naming names, but Australia, and it's not quite summer where you are, you may not fully understand or appreciate that, but for where we are... It can be hard as hell at times.
1: Yeah. And, you know, people like to, you know, always make that dumb joke of like, oh, well, you know, in Canada, it's like, you know, you're all igloos and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, even with the city we live in, Winnipeg, Manitoba, um, where, you know, the jokingly given name, the slang name of our city is Winterpeg. But Winnipeg has an 80 degree swing Celsius wise in temperature, in, you know, an average year, which sounds insane to some people and it is. <laughs> it's truly insane. So like in the wintertime, it can get to be minus 40. Not counting wind chill, but it can get to be minus 40. And that's 40 degrees Celsius, also minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. They're the same temperature. I looked it up. They are. <laughs> um, but then it, in the winter, in like the summertime, it can get to be plus 40, which is, you, you know how, if you consider zero just kind of like, eh, it's kind of cold, kind of hot, eh, well, it's not kind of hot, it's kind of cold, but plus 40 is as hot as minus 40 is cold. And that's the best way I can describe it.
0: <laughs> yes, um, as debilitatingly hot as minus 40 is debilitatingly cold. And I'm just, like, looking up the
1: uh, – so it's it gets to be 104 degrees Fahrenheit, which – and that's before Humidex. So, um, yeah. Don't know if that sounds crazy or not. If it may, hopefully it sounds kind of crazy to some people that it goes from minus 40 Fahrenheit to 104 Fahrenheit. If you're an American listening to this. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, but yeah, so the heat. All heat aside, like, you know, heat can be escaped from, you know, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not complaining that it's warm or anything like that. Um, but I'm just specifically saying the sun is not my friend because, well, you know, I, I have that, you know, um, my cultural back, my cultural makeup is such that, or genetic makeup, whatever you want to call it, is that at least half of me is, you know, nondescript general UK, very white people, white, pale, (laughs) vampire-type people, as it were, maybe, if you want to put it that way. Um, So when, you know, I get out in the sun and I'm not wearing sunscreen, if I am, you know, foolish, which I often am and forget um, to put sunscreen on, I will get a bad sunburn. And not in a row, but two – actually, it might be in a row, you know still time is still a blur with this whole lockdown that we're still in um but I think it's been two weekends in a row or one weekend, another weekend where it didn't happen, and then this past weekend, where I've gotten a bad sunburn in a different place two weekends ago, it was on the top of my head because I didn't think to lather a bunch of sunscreen into my the top of my head. Most people don't think about that, you know. I usually either wear a hat or whatever. And anyways, uh, <laughs> but then the other day it was just one arm because I was just kind of <laughs> out. And I guess the way I was situated, whatever I was doing outside, I must've been just you know, being baked from one side more than the other. So yeah, my one arm looks very red <laughs> and it's a little bit uh touchy to the touch, but um yeah, the sun is not my friend,
0: so it sounds like uh it really doesn't take much for you and your skin to uh get uh, uh, the kernels extra crispy
1: yes, and the worst part is after being burned, I go back to being super white it, it doesn't translate into a tan at least, so it doesn't it's not like you know I start getting that healthy summer color to my skin, you know like i don't. I don't get that nice healthy summer
0: tan. Nope. Not at all. So so there's no real uh lasting effect or, or beneficial consequence to being burned. It all just kind of goes away, and your skin and your pigment seems to live in the two extremes.
1: Yep. No in between. <laughs> like Winnipeg, there's no in between of the extremes that my skin can be in.
0: <laughs> Well, you sir, uh, sounds like your skin at least and your uh, tanning capabilities, uh, have been dealt, uh, just a rotten hand. Yes. Yes, they have. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it's only June. It's uh, only going
1: to get worse from here too. Well, I've learned my lesson, I'd like to think. And, um, I'll be using sunscreen a lot more heavily <laughs> in these upcoming weeks and
0: or months. So, um, sunscreen in combination with a full beekeeper suit. To, uh, keep, yes. the, really truly keep the sun off your skin, all aspects of the, uh, sun no longer touching your, your exposed skin. I think that's the only way to stay safe. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's probably fair. It sounds extreme, but, uh, you know, probably worth it in the end. Although, unless you really want to show people that, yeah, I was out in the sun, here's my burn, see? <laughs> well, <clears throat> seems like an unnecessary thing to be proud of true i i will uh concur that point but you also can't tan so you need some proof you've been outside at least <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> i guess that's fair so uh we're all experiencing it, it here even just before recording this program here i had to go move my vehicle around which was sitting outside in the sun for quite a while and that's uh i that was hot like an oven inside so uh I've also ha- uh, learned the hard way in these hot summer month temperatures to not leave my sunglasses in the car. For if I do and then come back to my vehicle and need them uh after they've been sitting in the glove compartment, I get some burns around my eyes. Yes, and spoiler alert, you'll always need your sunglasses. Ah, it's true. It being so bright out and also their prescription and I like to see things. Yes, exactly. So... This is our fate, and I'm sure you out there are suffering perhaps a similar fate if you have somehow managed to avoid all of this or uh, perhaps have, have some techniques or ideas uh, to help Dennis exist in the sun or, uh, more uh, appropriately, peacefully coexist with the sun. Uh, you can hit us up. You can email us info at thearcadeshow.com or reach us through social media at The Arcade Show on both Twitter and the Facebook. So that's, uh, that's a good opening Opening repartee to and fro back and forth, but, uh, let's, let's keep the good times rolling, if you will, with some ludicrous leadoffs, uh, both of which we have this week, two we have this week, I should say, and both involve, uh, ridiculous amounts of money, uh, as we have seen through the course of this year, uh, people and their money are becoming more easily parted, it seems.
1: Yeah, um, you know, the old saying, you know, a fool and his money are easily parted seems like maybe a lot more people are turning into fools this day in age. And, um, it makes me laugh, but it also makes me very sad for the future of our human race. Um, so uh, there's, there seems to be two trends right now going around, going around on, you know, various auction sites and whatnot that I'm noticing. One of them is surrounding that K-pop band BTS where people are, well, so far I haven't actually seen too many successful instances of it, but I have seen a lot of people try to sell, you know, packaging for fast food, like the the current promotion that they have in a few countries, our country included where, um, there's BTS branded McDonald's stuff like, you know, happy meals and whatnot and various, you know, um, chicken nugget wrappers and stuff. uh, but that's one thing Uh, I've seen people try to sell packaging for chicken McNuggets and whatnot for pretty expensive on eBay because it has the BTS branding. And maybe some people are buying that because they're super cuckoo bananas over BTS right now. But the other thing is, you know, a lot of people seem to like um, among us. And speaking of chicken McNuggets, um, it's not the packaging that went for a lot of money. Uh in this instance, someone actually managed to sell a chicken McNugget specifically that they consider something that looks a lot like one of the um among us characters um, for a lot of money.
0: Yes, so perhaps you've uh, heard this story already, but uh, in case you haven't, we are here bringing it to you for the first time that we are talking about. it. really the definitive, authoritative voices on silly uses and uh, uh, applications of money in this current modern age. And the the imaging question, yes, as you said, is of a chicken McNugget that is resembling a crew member, I believe they're called, from the game Among Us. I guess, but if you turn it the other way, it could be a football with tabs. It could be, if you flip it upside down, it's a weird bunny shape. But just the orientation that the person saw it in made them think, hey, this is shaped like a crew member from Among Us. They put it up on eBay, and that's where the madness happened. So just in looking through the bid history of this particular Chicken McNugget, it all started on May 28th with a list price of 99 cents. And that was the initial ask price. The first bid after that uh, was, I believe, on May 30th, to the tune of $14,969.69. Yep. So, there wasn't even really a, 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 you know, logical progression of bidding. It was... A real escalation into Bananasville right off the hop with this particular Among Us shaped Chicken McNugget. Yeah. And the bidding bidding history just kind of went cuckoo bananas from there into the 15,000s. A lot of, uh, I think it's one user, uh, making sure their bids all ended in 69.69 because lols, uh, and just escalated from there, went into the 30s, went into the 40s, uh All the way, making it up to the final bid total for this apparently Among Us crew member-shaped chicken McNugget from the BTS meal. Closing price was ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety seven U.S. dollars.
1: <throat> yeah, so just shy of a hundred thousand U.S. dollars for what is effectively just a random blob of mechanically che- separated chicken meat. That, you know, was slightly misshapen, that slightly resembles something else. When I heard about this, you know, a few different things kind of popped into my head. The first of which was the, again, there's a, there's a Simpsons reference for everything. And the Simpsons reference that popped into my head was, you know, the episode where everyone in town basically got roped into being a part of that cult, where they had, you know, that their leader was literally called the leader. And then um, the movementarians, I think they were called. Ah, yes, Um, yes. But then, you know, there was, like, that scene where they – like, basically they were only allowed to eat, like, lima beans and, like, nothing else because it was just, like, basically, like, you know, bland diet that's basically just minimally, like, sustaining them kind of thing, you know playing into the whole thing of how cults actually operate. But all that aside, like Homer, you know, was basically eating his lima beans. He's like, ooh, I found another bean that looks like the leader. I'm going to put these with the rest of the leader beans. And they just like has a whole shelf full of these like just lima beans that vaguely might resemble their leader kind of thing. So that was the first thing that popped into my head when I thought about this. I'm like, okay, I found an Among Us thing. Like, okay, did you? (laughs) Or was this just a random like – is this gonna be worth anything in like a week when it's either rots away or like just stale and gross and crumbles apart? Like, but then the second thought I had was there's an old clip from, you know, the Johnny Carson era tonight show when Johnny Carson had a woman on who had a massive collection of potato chips that looked like, you know, various people and things and stuff. The joke of the clip was that, like, you know, when she was looking away for a second, he had a bowl full of, like, potato chips, and he took a bite of one, and she looked back super, like, paranoid, like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, no, no, I'm – oh, man, I'm sorry. uh." (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, the joke being, like, he did that just to make her seem – make her think that he was eating one of her prized potato chips or whatever, but it's like – that's what reminded me of this. I'm like, I guess people will collect anything and spend way too much money on anything if it seems – that it lines it up up with their crazy interests, but the the next thought I had was like, is whoever owned this one of these kind of like nihilistic Wall Street bet people who like made all their money basically on a whim just by you know choosing stocks for the lulls and just basically getting inexplicably
0: rich real fast, and this is just their way of uh, having more lulls with their vast amount of meme stock you know fortunes yeah. Eminently possible. Now, the Simpsons reference that came to my mind, uh, with this auction is actually different than the one you experienced. Uh, the, the flash I had from Simpsons in my brain over this, you know, news item in this particular auction was the scene, uh, where, I can't remember what episode it was, but, uh, Bart Simpson kind of makes his way and he's in an auction house. And he sits in on an auction for some really expensive prized, you know, paintings and, and, uh, pieces of art and whatnot. And he just drives up the bidding and, uh, wins the auction for a ridiculous amount of money and then snickers and then just runs out of the auction. With yep. the joke, then the joke being, okay, that, uh, you know, that boy obviously is not going to be the winning bidder. So then the next person, you over there, the next size bidder, yes, you are the winner. And then that person snickers and runs out of the auction. (laughs) And then the auctioneer just eventually asks if anyone was bidding seriously on the item in question, which no, no one was. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's what, that's what I'm reminded of with this.
1: Yeah. I mean, it. I don't think I've ever actually properly bid on an eBay auction. So like, I don't actually know if you're able to back out of it at the end of it, but. I hope that whoever actually won this auction backs out of it because that's stupid.
0: I I think uh, what you can do is the, the bidding process uh, and whatnot, the auction process is kind of one step, and then uh, there will be the actual transaction of monies being exchanged as an entirely separate process. Uh, but it would be possible for someone just to back out and maybe not pay as I suspect. In my own personal belief here is what's going to happen is that this money is not going to be exchanged and that this was just done purely for shits and giggles on the part of the internet at large. Yeah. Like this wasn't just one person doing one massive bid and laying down a hundred thousand dollars for this particular McNugget and scaring away everyone else. No, there was back and forth, there was exchanges, there were bid limits being reached, new bid limits from other people being set, and it just going back and forth between what appears to be six to eight different people, some of whom actually have you know stars attached to their name, so they are active. Uh, eBay users, and they have reviews, uh, you know, many hundreds of reviews to their name, so that suggests that they've been doing this for a while on the eBay thing, but, uh, other people, like the winning bidder, has a grand total of eight comments to their name, so... makes it sound like they haven't really been around for too long doing that many different things, so... we'll see. I don't suspect that this is, uh, really going to, uh, uh go anywhere that's my guess yeah
1: i i'd like to say i don't see this going anywhere either but we also see the current state the world is in with nfts and things like that so who knows i'm optimistically pessimistic but <laughs> you know <laughs>
0: i guess i guess we'll have to see yeah that's what this year has done to you it's made you optimistically pessimistic <laughs> yeah i guess so well, that's, uh, that's one way of looking at it. I'm not entirely sure if we'll hear, uh, if this money actually gets transacted. Uh, if it goes back up for auction, uh, then I'm sure we will hear about that through the news wires and various feeds and sites that, uh, we all visit and hear from. Now, if you're wondering how exactly this will be sent from the seller to the purchaser, uh, the seller did say in the description on eBay for this particular chicken McNugget that, quote, uh, I'd, Item will be frozen and then air sealed to ensure freshness with secure shipping method. <laughs> okay, air sealed for freshness. Just gonna throw it out there. Air sealing is not what you want to do to this. No. The funny thing about chicken nuggets is they're
1: not—they're not the most. Um, uh, let's say they're not the most robust things in the world.
0: Uh, yeah, I I don't know if they're going to stand up for too terribly long with uh, air sealing as a particular method. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's a hundred thousand dollars for a, a freeze dried and air sealed uh, chicken McNugget. I would, pr- if I'm paying that much, I want it vacuum sealed to ensure that there's no air around it to uh that would help the decomposition process. Call me crazy, but uh, yeah, that's why I did not bid on this.
1: Yeah, that's the only reason why you didn't bid on this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so we shall see, but, uh, remember, uh, back say in the Ten Commandments, the, the movie, the Ten Commandments, uh, towards the end when, uh, Charlton Heston comes down from the Mount with the, uh, the tablets and all the other Israelites are basically just having just one wild shindig uh, around them and they're all worshiping the golden calf that they've all <laughs> lost their way and worshiping the golden calf. Is this the golden calf for a new modern age? In Among Us shaped <laughs> chicken McNugget from a BTS meal.
1: Oh man. If this isn't it, then surely it'll be one of the NFTs that get sold. Get that gets sold, I should say.
0: Yeah. Because cause this, this reeks to me of like golden calf, <laughs> except with the golden calf, uh, even though it was just, you know, a movie based on a fictional book, but, um, you know, at, real,
1: hashtag real talk, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but at least Hope. you can,
1: go on. I was going to say, in case it's never also been clear on this program, neither one of us are particularly religious people.
0: <laughs> I'm only in it for the holidays. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but uh, anyways, go on. But what I was going to say is at least uh, as as we saw depicted in the Ten Commandments, which uh, I, I still enjoy watching for the sheer ridiculousness of a movie of that skill being done in like the 50s. And, well, I and mean, just, also,
1: Charlton Heston is such, like, a classic over-actor. Like, you just – it's its fun to watch him on screen because it's like – why is he saying stuff like that? thats It's like he's going to 10 when he needs
0: to go to maybe 7? Like, what's he doing? Everything is monumental and epic. That comes from his mouth. Every piece of dialogue. It's fantastic. Fair. But, uh when, you know th- – th- I can, I can see an actual golden calf, like a statue made of gold, at least being a lot more worthy of, uh, worship and, you know, corruption of people's souls and whatnot than a goddamn chicken McNugget. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the point I'm going to make here. And, uh, it's been fun. You know, society and civilization was, uh, was fun while it lasted, but I think we all knew this ride was going to end at some point, right? <laughs> yes. I, I can only imagine the, the tomes of uh, future generations and civilizations being written about our downfall and what led to it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be a dumb lesson for the history books, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, da- the downfall of Western civilization, part five, NFTs and Chicken McNuggets.
1: <laughs> slash BTS.
0: <laughs> it was a crazy time.
1: Yeah, NFTs, Chicken McNuggets and K-pop. What
0: went wrong? (laughs) Anyways. A a cautionary tale for all of us. (laughs) Oh, man. But uh, any of us who've been around for the past uh, 20, 25 years uh, and existing, if you've been in a coma for those uh, years, sorry to break it to you, but uh, one thing we've learned over the past uh, 20, 25 years, particularly with the rise of uh, file sharing through those years into uh, digital music services and whatnot as we move into our second ludicrous leadoff, is that the music industry is extremely litigious and will do everything they can to get money that they believe and see as being owed rightfully to them. Yeah. And so it's in that vein that uh, we talk now about our second ludicrous leadoff, this being the news uh, earlier uh, in the week, I guess it was, that the Roblox uh, Corporation... Slash the the company behind Roblox is being sued for a uh, total of or a minimum total of two hundred million dollars in a uh, in a lawsuit brought forward by the National Music Publishers Association, uh, and that's a two hundred million dollar figure uh, being sought for damages and claims uh, on the on behalf of artists such as Imagine Dragons, Ed Sheeran, Ariana Grande, The Rolling Stones, amongst others. All claiming that they have had their music, their pieces of work illegally used in games hosted on the Roblox platform. Yeah, I mean, if
1: you're like me and you're not super familiar with Roblox, uh, the, the, the 30-second elevator pitch of what it is is that it's an online platform that lets users build their own games and play experiences created by others. Uh, it's become incredibly popular in recent years and boasted over 150 million monthly active users as of July 2020. And uh, it does also continue to attract sizable um, – well, this is all quotes from uh, Chris Care of uh, Gamasutra.com. He says it – attract sizable investments and most recently received five hundred twenty million in uh Series H funding to expand beyond the world of games. So it's basically like a TLDR is users pay to be on the platform, users pay to upload games
0: that they've made, and other users pay to play those games. That's and, the whole thing. Yeah. And not only that, users can also pay to insert music that they want, perhaps from their own collection or whatever other sources, into the games they have made and put up on the Roblox platform. Yeah. So that seems like perhaps a giant blind spot that the Roblox Corporation has had previously. Now, people and users will be paying with Robux, the in-game virtual currency, but that's all money that goes to the Roblox company, and they're all collecting it so people can use a song without necessarily getting the proper permissions and rights for it from the publishers, the the rights holders, uh, songwriters, all that stuff. Basically, everyone involved with the song. So the only people making money in that transaction of somebody uploading a song that they want in their game on the Roblox platform is Roblox themselves. Yes. (laughs) Again... I I bring this back to what I first said. Anyone who's been alive and awake for the last 20, 25 years has learned that the music industry is extremely litigious, and they will get every dollar, every red cent they believe is rightfully theirs. Where has the Roblox company been for these past 20, 25 years? Yeah, I just had to look it up. Roblox was first released
1: on PC back in 2006, and iOS on 2012, and Android 2014, Xbox One 2015. So... You know, technically, they've been around for about 15 years. I don't know if it's always been like maybe you know, 15 years ago, the internet wasn't quite as robust as it is now. But you know, that's just the nature of how the internet's been going. But yeah, it's the fa- I'm I'm honestly surprised that you know there was never any sort of like content ID or vetting of anything like that. Because I mean, this goes. <laughs> This goes back to, you know, the whole thing that happened with rap. Remember when rap was basically, like the whole, the whole concept of, you know, a lot of rap and hip hop is based on sampling old music and like some of the best hip hop, most classic hip hop was made under the constraint of like trying to find, you know, samples that no one can really identify and use them in a creative way until, you know, you know, it it really came kind of to a head with the brilliant and also ridiculous Paul's Boutique by, like, the Beastie Boys, which is from, like, the late 80s when it was like they were kind of unashamedly sampling, like, hundreds and hundreds of sources. Very obviously, like, sometimes you could be like, oh, there's a Beatles sample. Oh, there's, like, a Paul Simon sample. There's a this sample. There's a that sample. Oh, they're using... They're blatantly using parts of songs, but in, you know, in a creative, interesting way. That's like, it's like, that's a Beastie Boys song. They include this other song, but there was no rules around it until then. And then after that, it was like, we got to figure this out because people are basically having their, like, they feel like they need credit, which in a way is kind of fair. Cause it's like, you know, it's like, if you're sampling something that no one's ever heard before, you're still kind of benefiting a little bit from someone else's work in a way. So I see where they were coming from, but that's, that's going back like almost 30 years. And yeah, I mean, that's the whole reason why content ID exists on Facebook or on no, YouTube and Facebook and stuff, right? So if you upload anything that they determine has like a copyright, they have AI to kind of automatically, you know, silence out those parts and like really, yeah. And I know, for example, like there's also people who are employed by, major labels like Warner music group and stuff who their whole job is literally clicking through new YouTube videos, listening through and seeing if there's any music in them and basically, you know, on mass filing copyright strikes
0: against people. It happens to people all the time. It it does. And somehow the uh, Roblox corporation and the Roblox people haven't had any sort of system in place to deal with that For users uploading content on their platform, which seems not just like a blind spot, but a horribly massive blind spot that you can drive a truck through. Yeah. Very much like, yeah, not just a blind spot,
1: but like just an outright like, like they were closing their eyes and walking forward and hoping for the best. (laughs) Unaware that, you know, they were maybe walking towards a bit of a cliff and that cliff being... You know, the whole, um, NMPA being the National Music Publishers, Publishers Association.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I, yeah, that uh, if that isn't a blind spot and, uh, just a, a bit of an oversight, then it's, I think to me would be deliberate ignorance. I I'm think- actually surprised that they were, manage- they've made it all the way to series H funding. Uh, Well, not only Series H funding. Roblox as a company went public in March.
1: Yeah, so when you go public, like there's a lot of like crazy due diligence that needs to happen, and you'd think that this would have come out as like a as maybe a potential liability. Like, hey, all this music that's in a lot of these games people are uploading is this all on the up and up? Like, is this licensed? Like, it's the whole reason why. Like, if like if you've ever played. Like a game like The Sims, for example, they don't use real music. Sometimes they, like, they have managed to license some music, but it's always done in like a sound-alike fashion. And even in Guitar Hero, like sometimes it's cheaper to license a song if you don't license the original recording. Cause like in the first Guitar Hero game, a lot of the songs would just be cover versions played by, you know, very, you know, accomplished Session musicians, but like, you know, you'd, you'd hear like an Ozzy Osbourne song or something like that. Maybe not, not, not the original version off of whatever Ozzy Osbourne album, but like a bunch of session musicians just playing the song or whatever. Like, like there's different degrees of like licensing music and stuff that you have to kind of go through. Unfortunately, if you want to make money off of stuff like this. So it's crazy that this never really came out in any sort of like due diligence checking or um, I don't remember what they call it, but it's basically when a company go like is going to go public or take on new series of investors that you really need to like comb over all of your assets and like, really like with a fine tooth comb, like look through, like, is there anything here that can potentially screw us when we start making more and more money, (laughs)
0: And either that process didn't, uh, get, uh, done so well, was glossed over, skipped over, whatever the case might be, uh, we don't know, but it is resulting in Roblox facing a minimum $200 million lawsuit on the part of the National Music Publishers Association. Group president David Israelite, uh, said in the press release, uh, discussing the Lawsuit that had been filed said, quote, Roblox has earned hundreds of millions of dollars by requiring users to pay every time they upload music onto the platform, taking advantage of young people's lack of understanding about copyright, and then they take virtually no action to prevent repeat infringement or alert users to the risks they are taking, end quote. And they're seeking specifically monetary damages for what uh, the group describes as, quote, Roblox's unabashed exploitation of music without proper licenses. And the group intends to, quote, ensure songwriters are fully paid for their works on the platform. End quote. Yeah. So is this one of the rare instances where the Music Publishers Association and just rights holders of songs and whatnot or more generally and more broadly, the quote unquote music industry is actually in the right. I think so. Maybe.
1: I mean, it, it's a bigger discussion that I don't think we want to get into right now of like the state of the music industry and like, you know, who's getting paid and like, is it fair? Who's getting paid? And are the artists actually properly benefiting and blah, blah, blah. And all that. But, Yeah, if (laughs) you can't just make money off of stuff you didn't create, like that's equivalent to me, like, like, I don't know. It's like, as an, as a musician myself, for example, if I just start, you know, putting out albums of music, like if I just start doing covers of various songs and then saying I wrote them, like that's not okay either. Like you can't do that. Or like literally not even giving any sort of nod or credit or anything of just like, then you end up with like another layer of this problem of like, I'm assuming that they're trying to skew younger for their audience here with Roblox. I don't, my loose understanding of what they are, like I'd imagine that, you know, it's maybe meant for a younger audience. If people are being exposed to things the first time, Maybe it's a like maybe it's a little bit weird if they're just like, "Oh, I really like that song from this game. Wonder what song that is, and then when they hear it, like they're like, "Oh, it's a song from that game," and then people are going, uh no, that's a Led Zeppelin song <laughs> like what are you talking <laughs> about It's just like maybe you're also kind of vaguely depriving people of like proper you know, like knowledge of things like i don't know anyways it's a bigger discussion, but yeah it does seem insane to me that (laughs) they were able to go on as long as they did with such like a glaring problem.
0: And uh, just doing some uh, quick numbers and looking at some quick numbers here, as I said, Roblox is now a publicly traded company. They've been publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange since early March. At the time of this recording, the share price or the price for one share of the Roblox company is in the early 90s. And the Roblox company has a market cap of just under $53 billion. So they're not a small company. No. No, they're not. So that $200 million that the uh, music publishing slash music industry is looking for, oh, I dare say that's going to go up. Call me crazy, but Roblox company has the ability to pay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and pay they should through the nose. But, uh, speaking of money and, uh, people who perhaps are easily, uh, pried apart from their money, uh, there's a lot of people out there who backed this next item we're going to talk about as we move out of the ludicrous leadoffs. Uh, you might recall many moons ago, Atari, or the, the dead skin mask wearing husk that Carl calls itself Atari, put forward an Indiegogo campaign to uh, seek funding and uh, monies to develop something called the Atari Box, which has since been re-termed and renamed the Atari VCS, where it was basically going to be a, a home computer system you can plug into your living room TV and uh, uh, was going to have some design nods and uh, winks and touches uh, that harken back to the Atari 2600 uh, of the 80s. And we covered it at the time that funding campaign was wildly successful to the point that it baffled both you and I here on this program more than once for the amount of money it received. Yeah. But uh, it was fully funded and then super funded, but we haven't really heard anything about the Atari VCN since then, and it's uh, just kind of existed as a vapor console. But uh news coming out most recently that the uh, dead skin mass wearing husk that calls itself Atari has release plans for the Atari VCS. Finally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this little machine that was super funded through crowdfunding means uh, is set to launch for uh, or on the date of June 15th. And it's going to be, if you didn't already pre-order one and are looking to just buy one when they go on sale, which perhaps is the better course of action, just wait until they're actually out and you could see one on a store shelf or something or on a retailer's website to give you a better sense that this thing might actually be tangible and might exist in the world. The base level model uh, will come in Onyx and is going to set you back 300 US dollars. There's also a quote-unquote all-in bundle for the Atari BCS that is going to cost you 400 US dollars and it comes with the classic joystick as well as a modern controller and you can get either of those tiers or either of those models or I should say either of those versions in the Black Walnut or Onyx color styles. And if you so choose, you can buy uh, each controller separately. So you can buy a modern controller separately. You could also buy the classic joystick controller separately. Those will cost you $60 US a piece. Yeah, so so not not cheap hardware. Not cheap hardware at all. And... If you're wondering what you all get with that for this personal computer that plugs into a TV, it comes preloaded with 100 arcade and tw- Atari 2600 games. There will also be a subscription included to the arcade library that's being done by Anstream. And this device can also double, as I said, as a PC, so you'll be able to install Windows or Linux on it and then use it for other tasks you'll also be able to uh watch netflix on it prime video as those apps will come preloaded onto it it's going to come with a chrome bri- chrome browser which is a tongue twister chrome browser loaded into it as well as various google workspace apps uh so if you actually want to do some productivity work with it you'll be able to do that for a mere 300 or 400 us dollars yeah, if you don't I mean... already have a computing device yeah, if you
1: don't already have a computer or a laptop in you know, which is usually these days the preferred um form factor for a computer that you'd want to get if you're just looking for a computer that does everything you wanted a computer to do, rather than having to buy all of like, you know, your keyboard, mouse and you know, screen separately and everything. Um <laughs> But yeah, having said that though, it, it does run on an AMZ Ryzen processor and it is, you know, has 4K output resolution, can do HDR, can do 60 frames a second. Though just take any of those things with like a giant asterisk and or a grain of salt because, you know, we don't know if it's going to maintain 60 frames a second in every game that's released on it because anyways, but it also has dual band Wi-Fi, Bluetooth 5, USB 3, So, like, it's it's pretty standard modern computer stuff that you're going to get with, like, you know, any decent modern computer. But, yeah, no idea um, what the actual benefit is and why you'd want this, you know, as an actual game console. Those benefits haven't been sold to us yet.
0: No, no, they haven't, with the main appeal to this point seemingly being that it comes preloaded with a 100 old games. Uh, either from the, uh, old arcade days and or the Atari 2600. Which is all well and good. I'm sure there are some classics on there. Uh, Galaga, Centipede, um, you know, Missile Command, things of that nature, perhaps even Joust. Uh, but not all games from that era were good. No.
1: <laughs> They're also, I mean, this is gonna maybe sound like sacrilege, especially given, you know, what our show is called and what the whole MO of our show is supposed to be, but, a lot of those games,
0: I just don't know if they really aged super well. That's uh, that's a fair comment. That's a, a fair thing to uh, to say and question, given that the the era that they were being developed in was early era game development. So people didn't really know what they were doing uh, slash they were figuring out as they went. Uh, they they were laying the tracks down as the train was chugging along. Yeah. There weren't uh, good standards of game development. It was just kind of uh, anyone with an idea, sure, go with that, see what happens. There was a there was a whole lot of uh, throwing crap at a wall and see what sticks. Back in that era of game development in the 80s, yeah. No, granted,
1: you know, like a lot of good stuff did come from it, and a lot of sort of standards were built out of it. But it's still like the early days. Like it, like those weren't where you know the best. Examples you can point to of like what a great classic video game is, came from necessarily with, with, you know, with the exception of maybe a couple possible exceptions, like, you know, like a, like a Pong or whatever. But yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, w- without getting, you know, too much more potential for us being roasted on the internet about, you know, saying <laughs> incendiary things like that. Yeah back to the original point that I made of like, there's not really any benefit as to, you know, to buy this thing. Otherwise it's like, which is in stark contrast with the next thing we're going to talk about in just a second, but there's not really a benefit to this because it's like, I hate, you know, I hate to bring it up, but it's like ROMs have been a thing for like 20 years. It's very easy to just kind of get a hold of, you know, A ROM pack of all the old Atari 2600 games, if you're so interested in doing so. I also think, you know, that the, like the Atari flashback is already a thing too. And it's not super expensive. And it's, you know, if, if that's, if your goal is just to play a bunch of old Atari games, there's a million ways to already do that. If your goal is to play new video games, you need, like, a selling point. You need games. <laughs> you need, like, dedicated developers. You need to release, you know, that killer app for your system. Have they done
0: this? Uh, I dare say they haven't as the uh – one of the selling points, one of the main selling points they uh, kind of talk about on their site, too, is the fact that this can be a personal computer used for whatever you want. So the retro-slash-gaming aspect of this device is kind of uh, uh, downplayed a bit, or at least uh, uh, tempered with the fact that you can use the device for these other applications, whatever you might think of. But it was initially sold kind of as a way to play these old games-slash-play-newer games but people already have a ways and means of doing that.
1: Yeah. Also, is this the best form factor for it? People are probably going to gravitate towards their phone for doing a lot of these things. Like if it's just doing emails or they're going to get a laptop or something, or at the very least something with a bigger screen, like it's more like, I would say the screen keyboard and mouse and whatever, like input methods are more important than the actual thing itself. Like that's a very old kind of idea. Like people, Like, I don't want to say this, but I I want to, like, it's, it seems kind of like as a society, we're almost, like, I'm not talking about, like, the people that like to build computers. Those people are always going to be there. Like, you know, the the gamers who are always trying to get the newest and greatest graphic cards and things like that. But that's not everybody. Like, the grand majority of people are not doing that. Like, the vast majority of people are very likely trying to just find some all-in-one solution that's economical for themselves, and these days, that's a laptop, right?
0: It can be, uh, it, it all kind of depends what your situation is, uh, what you, maybe what space you're dealing with, uh, just what you are looking for, what you want to get out of things. But yeah, a laptop can but deliver my, on my, what my you point, need.
1: My point is that like most places, like, I mean, even in workplaces and stuff, unless like you're a call center and you know, you're using, like, you're just looking for like, bulk deals on, like, as many workstations as you can get, and then you just kind of take whatever form factor you can get. Like, desktop computers aren't really the ideal form factor anymore for people.
0: No, and that's been uh, uh, in a gradual decline, uh, I think, for the last, what, say, 10 years to ballpark it. Yeah. as as, com- as computing technology has shrunk down in size and you can fit in, I guess, higher powered uh, guts into a the form factor of a laptop.
1: Yeah. So
0: even if this is a
1: tiny little box, it's still a separate box that you need to get all the extra accessories for. And yeah, if, if they're trying to now backpedal and sell it as, you know, a productivity machine, it's definitely not going to be a front runner in
0: that regard. So like, I'm going to take that as a marketing fail. Oh, certainly, because I think the gaming aspect of this is uh sorely lacking when it was initially kind of sold at least to my re- recollection as a uh you know gaming machine that can play the old games and play some new games, and yeah sure you can use it as a computer, but uh that was kind of a, a third or fourth bullet point that was used at the time with games kind of being more front and center, but that seems to me like it's uh Perhaps uh, that bullet point has jumped up a bit in the uh, pecking order of things. So, at the same time, too, look at the price point. You're paying three or four hundred dollars U.S. for one of these versions of the Atari VCS. That's not cheap. No, that's that's you know Chromebook slash uh, you know internet connected laptop levels of price and or. In the realm of like a PS4, Xbox One, or save a few more shekels and you might get yourself a PS5 or Xbox Series X if you can find them. Exactly.
1: And those systems have, you know, demonstrated that they have like an actual lineup of games you can play so far for them. So, and like how those games would look on the system. So, we don't really have that from this Atari VCS. And also, I I would just say it's a distinct lack of vision for just basically putting it out there that, like, it's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be a game console and it kind of looks like an old Atari. Oh, but then it it also can do this. Oh, and it can also do this. It's like, yeah, but, like, what what's the thing you want us to take away from this? Like, I think this is a good transition into the next story because unlike – Atari who has no idea really what they want you to think and about what this Atari VCS is going to be panic knows exactly what they want you to think. The play date is going to be, you know, now that's a thing that we probably, that we haven't talked about in a couple of years on this program. Remember the play date?
0: Uh, I do, but perhaps you should uh, catch the listeners up on what exactly the play date is and what it involves. So the play date is a little, it's
1: a handheld black and white, video game console that, um, is going to like that has a little crank on the side of it just to add an extra, you know, different control aspect. And it has a black and white dot matrix style display. And, um, if I'm not mistaken, it's actually going to be kind of like pretty gutsy. Cause I think teenage engineering might've been involved somehow. Um, but don't, don't quote me exactly on that, but, aside all that aside i know it's it's intended to basically be a truly unique experience when they release it it's going to be internet connected and they plan on weekly releases of new games every week so you buy it when you buy your thing when you buy this playdate thing you actually like in with it you get i don't i guess you could call it a subscription or you know a a subscription is probably a good way to put it to at least the next season's worth of games coming up. And you get to play them as they come out week by week. And it's, you know, very interesting, very kind of opinionated take. Like it's not meant to be just like all the other video game consoles you get out there. Like it's got its own specific control scheme and it, they showed a little bit of a sizzle reel, when they were showing like when they were still in the concept phase, so like they were way further ahead than this atari v c s was in terms of even concept when they were trying to get it out to get consciousness of this thing out in the open, and in doing so, they showed you know a few different ways that that real that crank thing could be used like they showed a game that had a time travel element where you're going forward and backward in time using the crank. I think they showed a fishing game because obviously they showed a couple of other things as well. Like, I mean, they, they weren't explicitly just selling you on the idea of the crank, but they were also selling you on the idea of like, you know, kind of a lo-fi looking console that is going to provide unique, new, simple, But possibly still challenging gaming experiences that aren't like other gaming experiences you're going to get on all the major regular consoles that you're going to get out there.
0: Yeah, it was, uh, it's going for a a certain quirkiness over, uh, over, or instead of just pure guts and power.
1: Yeah. But, um, yeah, so just to, just to kind of, in my head, put a cap on this. Atari VCS. I don't know what they want me to buy. Like I know they want me to buy this VCS when it comes out, but they haven't given me a reason to buy it. That's really a good reason because they don't seem to know what the good reason is. They just they seem to think, oh well, it's it's a video game console. Oh, but it, it can also be a computer. Oh, you could put Windows on it maybe. Oh, you could put Linux on it. Oh, you know there there's probably gonna you know we're gonna have games available for it. But maybe you can do whatever you want with it. It's like, okay, well, maybe I'll pass then because I already have a million devices that are exactly that. Thanks. Not going to buy it. Whereas Playdate, I look at it and go, oh, it is not like anything that I own. Huh. They, they're actually selling a new thing to me. <laughs> it's different. I, do, I can't get that experience with other existing devices and things I
0: have. Hmm, Interesting. So that's the difference between these two things. Absolutely, uh, Playdate is not just trying to sell you and convince you to buy their device or the Playdate device, uh, simply through the use of nostalgia as Atari is trying to do with the VCS. But are, is, is that
1: what Atari's doing? My point is that I don't think they know what they're doing. Like they're, they're using Atari, the name and like the wood paneling, sure, a little bit, but when it comes down to like the rest of it, It's very unclear.
0: Uh, at least in the early stages of the crowdfunding campaign, nostalgia seemed to be uh, more front and center. It seemed uh, like uh, nostalgic people, you know, people who grew up with the 2600s and uh, Atari 7800s were purchasing and backing the campaign back then. Who's going to buy it now? A couple of years after that initial launch of campaign and it, the fact it's taken so long to get to this point and a price point being issued at $300, $400 US for each version of the Atari VCS? I don't know who the uh, target audience is anymore with a very muddled message or who they would reach I should say with a muddled message but the playdate as you've uh, laid out presents a unique idea from the outset from the from the moment you look at the playdate you you get that this is going to be a different experience compared to everything else you have played or or are able to play at this current point in time and there's no wishy-washiness about it which is my big point like
1: they're providing a unique experience. They're not backpedaling out of out of the experience to you know once they realize like oh well if if that doesn't quite do it for you uh, you 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 still could check your email on it maybe or oh there, there's probably going to be Netflix oh uh, well you you could still maybe just load Windows on it and do whatever you want to do on Windows. It's like no, there's none of that aspect. It's like they're sure of themselves. They're sure of what they have. Even if it's a garbage product, like that's like sales 101. Like you need to be sure of what you're selling. If what you're selling can't
0: stand on its own, then maybe you shouldn't be selling that thing, right? This is true. And uh, we are talking so much about the play date now uh, for a good reason, because while we have a, a launch date for the Atari VCS, we still have... Uh, no clear launch date yet for the play date, but we do have an idea when pre-orders at least are going to go live for it, and a better idea of price point. So the uh, date, specific date, you know, day and date for pre-orders uh, has not been announced yet, but we know at least the pre-order month will happen sometime in July that is when people will be able to go online and pre-order a playdate, the quirky little yellow device for themselves at a price point of 179 US dollars, notably cheaper than the Atari VCS. Yes, it's also yeah, it seems like it's going to be a cool experience. And
1: something I really appreciate from some of the messaging they've put out um uh well panic, I'm not saying this is a thing you should be doing panic is the company <laughs> you know that uh is really the the brains behind this playdate uh in case you don't know who panic is they are a game publisher who two of their more notable titles were firewatch and untitled goose game uh but yeah they they put out like a little bit of like a presser saying that they don't intend to sell out of playdates but they plan instead to continue to take orders and send out units as they receive them from the factory which that, to me, I don't understand why more companies don't do that. Like it, like the, the whole direct-to-consumer aspect and also, you know, as long as you're taking orders, like, like yeah, I, I understand that, you know, you don't want to be doing too much manufacturing as a one-off type thing. But they say the sooner you order, the sooner you'll get yours, but we're not going to close the door on you. Uh, if we sell way more playdates than we planned, given how constrained parts are right now due to COVID-19, it might take a while for you to get yours. We'll be working constantly with the factory to adjust for demand. And we'll be taking you or talking to you every step of the day, which is a quote from uh Cable Sasser, who is the co-founder of Panic. But yeah, they just, they want to make sure that everyone who wants one gets one. A, clear, spoiler, a clear communication. Yeah. And spoiler alert. I think I want one. <laughs>
0: Uh, I totally understand it's, uh, but what I appreciate there, and it kind of feels like a, a, a shot across the bow, although somewhat, uh, uh, in- indirectly, uh, against, uh, the company analog when their, I believe it was their analog handheld went up for pre-orders, they sold out almost right away. And there were a whole lot of people who still wanted to get a pre-order for that analog handheld but couldn't and still are left wondering when the hell can they pre-order what's going to happen? Because there was no clear communication on the part of analog at that time as to perhaps how many units are available for pre-order or is this just the one window where will there be additional windows of pre-order what's going on? Whereas panic has, I guess maybe had the benefit of just kind of sitting back and learning from these other people's experiences saying, yeah, a clear communication, We're gonna keep cranking them out from the factory, you just may not get them right away.
1: It's also maybe a bit of a shot of the bow, shot over the bow, uh, at every other game company as well. Like if going back even to Nintendo with the, the, the two classic console releases, how many people were not able to actually get the classic console they wanted? because it was unclear how long Nintendo would be selling them for, how many units that would be available or how limited the supply would be at various stores. First of all, and then second of all, even looking at this whole fiasco that's been going on with the Xbox and the PlayStation five, I have been actively looking for a PlayStation five and I can't get one because, because people know how scarce the supply is There are notification services set up to let you know when various online retailers have them in stock and there's no real proper way of being able to pre-order in place. So it's pretty much as soon as they're available, it's like a mad rush for everyone. And then if you get one, you get one, if you don't too bad. So they're probably looking at all of this nonsense of like people frustrated with unable to get stuff. And they're probably looking at this going, you know what? Let's just kind of control the flow ourselves. Let's make it so that you can only get it through us, but also make the guarantee of when you're getting it through us, you're going to get one. It might just take a little bit longer, but you like you buying one right now ensures your place in line, wherever that line is.
0: And so that is uh, a unique communication. And I hope other people will take note of that and follow suit. Um, it gives hope, it gives confidence to the, to the consumer in public that, hey, yeah, I'm still going to be able to get one and perhaps tones down and tamps down the mad rush to try and get one before you're shut out and have to wait for who knows how long. And then it also
1: will hopefully drive down the, the secondary market of people reselling them for ludicrous amounts of money.
0: True enough too, because that, uh, Is a problem as uh, there might be supply, but uh, it's all perhaps bought up by scalpers Mm -hmm. and then sold for ridiculous amounts on the secondary market, Amazon, eBay, your local marketplace pages, whatever the case might be. So the the little Playdate device that was the communication in a in an update video that the company put out on YouTube. Uh, in addition to the launch or pre-order window coming open in July and the price point being announced at 179 US dollars, they also showed off a, a quaint little little device called the Playdate Stereo Dock. And it's exactly as it sounds. It's a uh, small box that can sit on your desktop. It's a charging dock for the Playdate, and it also doubles as a Bluetooth stereo speaker. And for some reason, because does quirky design people seem to have uh, loud voices on this team? There's a pen holder in addition to this stereo dock as well.
1: <laughs> so it's like legitimately, it's legitimately just a a thing for your desk. It doesn't really add any benefit to the Playdate itself, but it's a fun little accoutrement.
0: It is a fun little accoutrement, and if you do purchase that uh, Playdate stereo dock, uh, it will also come with a pen for you to put in the pen holder. Yes, of course. Yes. Why wouldn't it? Yes, yeah, so I believe it's going to be a, a Playdate pa- or Panic slash Playdate specific one. So it'll be matching the same shade of yellow as everything else that's uh, being released with this device. But uh yeah, you don't have to worry. They're not just including a, a simple cheap Bic pen in there as well. Yeah. Uh, also, the company, this is worth noting too, they announced that they were doubling the number of games, free games that would be included with your subscription to Season 1 once you purchase the playdate. Initially, it was announced that there was going to be uh, 12 games released weekly over the span of 12 weeks, but now it's going to be 2 games released each week over the span of 12 weeks, giving you a grand total of 24 free games, some of them from the uh, people behind games like Katamari Damacy, Quap, ridiculous fishing and, and card of darkness. So, uh, it, this is an interesting little indie artistic device. Yeah, I agree. So again, the pre-orders will be coming online in July. We don't have a specific day and date. Once we have that information, uh, we of course will pass it along to you. Uh, but of course, Dennis will get in on that action, uh, initially, I'll admit I'm somewhat on the fence, simply because uh, uh I like the overall idea, I like the concept, but the form factor um, is what gives me reason to pause, and largely because I don't know how comfortable it looks to actually hold in one's hands. It's a very yeah. small device. It looks smaller than what I initially thought it was going to be. That's fair. So, uh, if you get one, I'll just uh wait till you get one and uh try try yours out for a test drive and see how I like it, yeah, I mean that's perfectly fair. Uh, but, uh, let's move on to our last two news items, uh, that we'll get to this episode. And they happen to be E3, E3 related, although, uh, not a whole lot of E3 related material. We will have that on the next episode of the arcade. As at the time we are recording this, E3 is just kind of getting underway in earnest. But we have two items, uh, worth talking about coming out of the Ubisoft conference. Uh, one of them was the surprise announcement of a new game that is, uh, a sequel. Well, sequel of sorts slash another collaboration between Ubisoft and Nintendo where Ubisoft is going to use Nintendo's beloved Mario characters for another ridiculous, ridiculous mashup game. Yeah. And so that game being Mario plus Rabbids, uh, the sequel, this is a sequel to the first Mario plus Rabbids game. That first one was called kingdom battle. This new one is called sparks of hope. And all that was really shown off was a uh, cinematic uh, premiere trailer, it's called. It's about three minutes long and looks, I mean, slick as a CG animated experience. But it uh, pictures Mario, Princess Peach, uh, Luigi, and some rabid versions of those characters launching off in a spaceship into space to visit a far-off distant planet to battle whatever evil is on that planet and save the day and be heroes accordingly as Mario and his friends are want to be. Yeah. So this is not something you'll need to uh worry about immediately. It's currently pegged for a launch uh in 2022. Uh there was also a, a brief gameplay trailer shown off. It looks to be a bit more open, looks looks to be a bit more actiony and uh, perhaps slightly less strict uh strategy involved than in the initial uh Mario Plus Rabbids game, but We'll have to see as more gameplay details come out. But the second noteworthy thing to come out of the Ubisoft announcement was actually uh, a music game without having to be a music game, but kind of maybe taking the idea of a music game into what really would have been the logical conclusion. So Ubisoft had their entry in the music game genre called Rocksmith, and that kind of came out at the tail end of the uh, popularity of the music game genre it's a title that's been reinterpreted a couple times, but now Ubisoft is doing a whole new spin on it with something called Rocksmith Plus. Yeah, so Rocksmith, I think part of
1: the reason why it didn't have the same impact that, you know, Rock Band or Guitar Hero had was because it did require you to have your own guitar, which, you know, uh. Is an expensive endeavor. Yeah, I mean, uh, even an entry level Um, beginners electric guitar is still a couple hundred extra bucks, which, you know, compared to the plastic toy instruments that come with Guitar Hero, it's way more expensive. So, yeah, but the thing I appreciated about those, the Rocksmith games versus the Guitar Hero games or whatnot, is that Rocksmith always did try to actually show you practical things that you could use on the real instrument. So any muscle memory you were building up for Rocksmith, you're actually building up for guitar. And Rocksmith Plus seems like it's really going to continue that, like, is- because it's it's a music learning subscription service, is what they're calling it, and less of an actual game.
0: Yes, and uh, to me, that seems like the grand logical conclusion of where the uh, music music game genre uh, should have went all along. Yeah. As opposed to, uh, in arms race or, or continual game of one, games of one-upsmanship. Well, we have this license, we have these licenses and whatnot. Teach people guitar. Yeah,
1: teach people real guitar, teach people real drums. Like, I don't see why there couldn't have been a piano version of it as well. I mean, teach people real piano.
0: <laughs> right? Uh, true. Uh, perhaps the market would be slightly lesser for that. Uh, I mean, Either A, you'd have to have your own piano, or B, those plastic pianos are, whew, expensive. Well, well don't have to be, though,
1: right? And it also doesn't have to be a full, like, 88-key grand piano. It can still be, like, a little 49-key thing that you just have on your lap or whatever. And, I mean, those exist already, and those aren't super expensive. Anyways, just, just a stray rant there. But, uh yeah, this one does seem interesting. It does... They're saying that when you subscribe to Rocksmith Plus, it'll have what they're calling a quote unquote huge library of songs, uh, which can be, you know, set to different speeds to allow you to play along at your own pace. You know, and you're not just limited to electric guitar, like you can also learn acoustic guitar using either a cable or a phone to listen to notes. Um, and I think you can learn bass with this as well. Yeah. I, I would imagine so, which is, you know, good. Uh, it, it includes, you know, um, yeah. The subscription covers all the songs that were previously uh in Rocksmith I think as well. That might be a misspeaking on my part. It's not super clear, but
0: um yeah. What I found interesting in watching the uh, the announcement video that Ubisoft released for this uh, Rocksmith Plus is when they go to the uh the uh camera shot of somebody's computer screen and they're logged into the Rocksmith Plus app and they're uh, kind of going through the quote-unquote huge library of songs one of the most prominent little tiles of a song right there is the crash test dummies and their song mm, 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 mm. which you know if you're of our of a certain age range
1: all of the lyrics to that song have been replaced in your head with the weird al version of it which is
0: headline <laughs> news <laughs> it's true but also i found that as a winnipegger the the hometown of the crash test dummies band like ah, oh, yes ha huh. An interesting little unintentional shout out. Yep. But uh yeah, so Rocksmith Plus, uh it's it's going into the actual like serious learning skills category for a music game. Yeah. So uh take that. Uh everything else you've ever done, guitar hero, rock band, all those sorts of uh entries. Yeah. So no word yet on any sort of uh, release date or any sort of price point for what uh, a subscription to Rocksmith Plus would actually run you. Uh, I'd imagine it'd probably be a couple bucks a month. Of course, greater discount if you subscribe a year at a time or whatnot. But then you'll have the ability to just kind of learn on your own time at your own pace. Yeah. Which, you know, uh, that's how music learning should be. <laughs> This is true. So, uh, an interesting, uh, interesting little, uh, nugget of info from the, uh, Ubisoft conference. Again, that's just a, a, a light tasting, uh, an initial serving of the E3 news. There of course is more that is happening even as we are currently recording this program. Uh, we'll get to all the uh, big news that's worth talking about on the next episode of this show. So that's just. Why we aren't doing a big E3 dive uh, this particular week, it's kind of just starting to happen, we'll do more next time. Hope that's, hope that's clarified enough for you people out there, and so, uh, in case you started listening to this and wondering like, hey, why are they only talking about E3 stuff at the end and it's just the EB stuff? Because it's just starting to come out. Relax, all of you, yeah. gear down.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have our whole, you know, our whole say, what we think the big news is and what are, you know, things we're most excited about over the next couple of weeks. So yes, relax.
0: Yes. Uh, good way to put it. Yes. <laughs> it's
1: but, a very condescending way to put it, but you know, it's still a good way to put it.
0: It's the only way I put things too. So I can't help it. <laughs> yes. Would you like fries with that? Relax. Relax. Hey, relax. Of course. What, 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 what am I
1: new? <laughs> 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 Let's say my first rodeo junior. <laughs>
0: I'm personally offended you even have to ask that question, so. Uh, but yes, let us move on from the news items into the last portion of the show, which is always the Blast from the Fast, the segment of the show where we take some minutes to uh, celebrate uh items that we think are worth talking about as they celebrate milestone anniversaries they can be video games or video game related they can be movies tv shows albums we've listened to and think you should listen to as well and uh this week we have three items to talk about two of them from the world of video games one of them not from the world of video games uh so just where do you think we should uh start with uh all of these I think we
1: should go newest to oldest. That way we can also, you know, go from a video game to something that's, you know, host to video games. And then the thing that's not a video game and probably also the thing we can talk the most about last. So, yeah, starting with the newest thing, which takes us back 10 years from this current point in time. uh, And it's kind of amazing that we're already 10 years past because there hasn't really been – Another entry into this franchise, even though it was kind of like a a joke for a long time. And the franchise is Duke Nukem, and the game in particular is Duke Nukem Forever. It was released on all the consoles and everything at the time that were available back 10 years ago. And the story behind Duke Nukem Forever is that it was basically stuck in development hell for... Uh, since 1997, so about 14 years, um, despite the fact that, you know, 3D Realms kept putting out ads every couple of years to maintain what small level of hype people had for it. And eventually, yeah, they, eventually they ran out of money. And then Gearbox bought up the property and or the company 3D Realms and then finally just finished it and released it. And it got very lukewarm reviews. Or no, not lukewarm reviews. Negative reviews. Let's just say that.
0: Yes, it was not warmly received. No. The the 15-year development cycle had not been kind to the development of Duke Nukem Forever uh, w- given the fact the game took so long to develop, there was, uh, numerous personnel changes, there was numerous technology changes, and we don't quite know what state Gearbox Software inherited Duke Nukem Forever when they just purchased the Duke Nukem property and purchased 3D Realms back in the, you know, early, you well, know, prior to 2010. Yeah. Or 2011 it is, but still. So... Just a protracted, needlessly protracted development cycle for a game such as Duke Nukem Forever. And uh, I think it uh, became quite clear when Duke Nukem Forever shipped and was finally released that the uh window of popularity for the character of Duke Nukem had kind of sailed. Yeah. Uh, not just kind of sailed, it had sailed, and... Uh, at the time when Duke Nukem was first released, it, it was one of those, you know, pinnacle, uh, uh, first-person shooter games that really built up the PC as a, a good first-person shooting platform and also helped launch, if you will, the genre of pers- first-person shooters.
1: Yeah, but first-person shooters, one. first-person shooters after Duke Nukem Forever, sorry, after Duke Nukem 3D, really evolved quite a bit because in those early days, they were very simple. There wasn't really a lot to them in terms of gameplay. It was just pretty much like forward, back, side strafing, turn around, shoot, pick up a gun, you know, and then very basic, like running and jumping and stuff. There wasn't really, you know, a lot beyond that. I mean, you lose health, you gain health by picking up things like that. You get slightly better guns that, you know, can do slightly more damage, etc., etc. There wasn't really the point that there that well first person shooters really evolved quite a bit you know particularly because of Call of Duty and you know Battlefield and Halo and um, you know all these different franchises that cropped up and kind of like really elevated the franchise the, the the genre I should say and then here we get Duke Nukem which, you know, literally and figuratively was a relic of the past, come back out 14 years later, in many ways, it it, like, gameplay-wise, did not feel like a modern game in a bad way. Like, all of the quality of life improvements of, you know, various... that basically people figured out over the past 15 years were mostly ignored. But then, all that aside, as a character... Duke Nukem was 100% a relic of the past.
0: I mean, even when Duke Nukem was, uh, new as a character and as a franchise in the early 90s, uh, Duke Nukem was very much harkening back to the big 80s action hero blockbuster movie stars, like, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger or or Sylvester Stallone as a Rambo and just playing off that the ultra uh, masculine very muscular very ripped action hero star who makes uh, a lot of stuff blow up kills a whole bunch of uh, nameless uh, bad guys gets the girl and saves the day at the end all while quipping off one-liners at a steady pace. Yeah.
1: So- but but as a character, I mean, like there are aspects to his character which, you know, didn't really age well and, you know, in the intervening years between the last Duke Nukem game and when Duke Nukem Forever came out, you know, even like 10 years is a long time even for like even people's senses of humor and like the general sensibility of society to kind of like look at stuff and go, ooh, that's a little cringy. And there's a lot of that in this game.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, very much so. And, uh, but those were all continuations of what the, the style and sense of humors or senses of humor was in previous Duke Nukem games. Yeah. They hadn't really been edited out or revised at all. They were just kind of kept in because that was the universe of the character, which the rest of the world had passed by in the time it was still in development. Yeah which is a wild thing to talk about. But yeah, it was. It was finally released. And I want to say my sense is it was just released through Gritted Teeth by Gearbox just to finally get the thing out there.
1: Yeah. Though, like, I think a a lot of people thought that Gearbox would be doing something more with the franchise after and, you know, continuing on with the franchise and, you know, making new, uh, making a new game, like making new games, I should say even in the intervening years, because I don't think there has been another Duke Nukem game since. Um, Yeah. What I, you know, I think it's a real missed opportunity to basically have the, the character and basically not make a, I'm basically a relic of the past and I don't know how to be in the modern world game. Like maybe that could be too on the nose. Maybe it's too played out of an idea, but you have Duke Nukem that could very easily be a thing, right?
0: Oh, certainly. And it's, uh, <clears throat> I think it would be an interesting idea and I for, uh, some interesting creative, uh, storytelling and also slightly introspective storytelling, uh, from, I guess the, the standpoint of a game character too.
1: Yeah. But then maybe, you know, when you get into that territory, people maybe sometimes start to either lose interest or not fully understand. Like it's, it's kind of what happened to Last Action Hero, right? Like people kind of wrote it off as just like a goofy, over-the-top, ridiculous, like much worse than regular Schwarzenegger Fair, even though it was kind of like a meta take on the standard Schwarzenegger Fair. Um,
0: yeah, it, yeah. You know, offering a, a meta take, a commentary almost on the the standard Schwarzenegger fair, Schwarzenegger affair, and could certainly do that with Duke Nukem as a character and And that avenue is still open to gearbox they haven 't explored it yet, uh so don't know how it would turn out. They haven 't really done anything with the character of Duke dukem yeah, which
1: uh
0: yeah unfortunately, or is that fortunately though is the character just so tired and played out that uh what could you do yeah i mean that that that's
1: also fair I mean. It would really require someone with the right touch to be able to bring Duke Nukem back in the modern age, I think, because, yeah, in many other ways, like as Duke Nukem Forever really did show us, kind of was a relic of the past in a lot of different ways, and maybe it was best left that way.
0: Yes, and uh, maybe that's just what uh, Gearbox's plan is. Just leave uh, Duke Nukem there. The, you know, the last chapter of the Duke Nukem story was released. That's fine. It's, uh, it's there. They paid X amount for the property. Paid a lot more in lawyer's fees once, uh, the parent company of 3D Realms and other people sued them left, right, and center. That, yeah, that's, stupidly. Yeah, that was a whole other schlamozzle, but, uh, that we won't get into now, but did cover on the show, uh, back then. But yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that we still haven't even seen the character of Duke Duke licensed out for other games to appear as, to make like a cameo appearance in like a, a Mortal Kombat game or something like that.
1: Yeah. That is also surprising.
0: Like, uh, just given the amount of uh games that will do crossovers or bring in characters from other properties, uh yeah. I mean uh look, Mortal Kombat, uh every DLC pack for the last couple of games has had some sort of non Mortal Kombat type character going on, a lot of them pulling from from uh action movies or or horror movies, so why not throw Duke Nukem in there? You know? Yeah. But uh Duke Nukem uh, did have a lot of games through his life, and I believe uh, did have some that even appeared on this next item we are going to talk about. It is not a video game per se, but instead is a handheld video game device that is celebrating its 20th anniversary. Uh, that device is the Game Boy Advance.
1: Yeah. So the Game Boy Advance, which was the uh, sixth generation Game Boy or, it, well, it was part of the sixth generation of consoles and or handheld systems, but in terms of the Game Boy family, it was, you know, immediately following the Game Boy Color, which was following the Game Boy Pocket, which was following the Game Boy. So I'm sure I'm missing some in there, but,
0: uh. Quite possibly, but it was the, uh, the newer, more advanced Game Boy that came out on June 11th, 2001.
1: Yeah, so where the original Game Boy and everything pretty much up to the Game Boy Color was that original generation of Game Boy that could play – that was basically technologically equivalent in terms of, like, the types of games that you would see and, like, the graphics and stuff to the original NES. The Game Boy Advance um, took it further and, you know, was then, I would say, maybe analogous more to the Super Nintendo.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, Super Nintendo, if not slightly, improved from the Super Nintendo.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, it could play, like, there were a number of Super Nintendo re-releases for the Game Boy Advance, and it played them with no problem whatsoever, so,
0: yeah. And they all looked better, and this was, uh, at the time, uh the dominant uh, handheld machine. Uh It was... Yeah. There was just something about it where it just made sense as the next logical iteration of the Game Boy. The initial form factor for it, a little unsightly, because when it was first released, it was uh, in a more horizontal orientation, uh just a very purple color. And uh, basically, as you see the Switch laid out when you're using the Switch in, in handheld mode, that's how the Game Boy Advance was laid out Uh back then. Then in later iterations or model redesigns of the Game Boy Advance, we got things like the Game Boy uh, uh, Advance SP, and and it became a clamshell design, which is what I have and still play and still works. And it just had a whole lot of games and a whole lot of uh, good, solid, fun, enjoyable games for it. Yeah. It, uh, you know, eventually did get a backlit screen, had shoulder buttons to it, um yeah it just was a real solid, stable, steady machine that uh, was successful, uh, was uh, in operation from and was supported from 2001 to 2010, uh, sold at retail initially for only a 100 bucks US, which back then, I think was a good price. and still looking back at it now, only get you know paying 100 bucks for the Game Boy Advance or something like that seems like a steal of a deal. Yeah,
1: I mean, like, you don't really see that type of deal anymore. Um,
0: but, yeah. And um, eventually went on to sell over 81.5 million units during its life cycle, which is uh, a damn good amount, was uh, then succeeded by the Nintendo DS.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, it, this was the, the last time Nintendo did a more traditional Game Boy-style thing as well. I think it's worth noting because from the DS forward, um they started introducing touch controls and uh in the case of the DS in particular, multiple screens and things like that. Just they started kind of going off the rails a little bit in terms of their ideas until they finally hit upon the switch. And now that's where they are at now. Um,
0: but yeah. So the Game Boy Advance, 20 years old. If you still have one, good chance it's still working. Uh, might need a new battery or something, but still works. And uh, this is also from the time, too, when uh, Nintendo was still trying uh, those crazy, kooky ideas to connect their handheld devices to their home console devices because you could actually connect and use your Game Boy Advance in some ways with some games for the for the GameCube. Yeah, that's right.
1: Using the the link cable, there was a number of different games that were kind of designed around this whole um, this whole mechanic. I mean, I think the two most notable ones that pop out in my head were Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles and Legend of Zelda: Four Swords Adventures.
0: That's right. Where I, I recall with uh, Legend of Zelda, at least, the four different people or perhaps three different people playing with the Game Boys connected would each control a different link and kind of have their own map on their own screen. Yeah, exactly. And I don't quite recall how how it worked in Crystal Chronicles. Uh, I think, would it be the same idea where you each had your own character and could kind of play through and control your thing through the uh, Game Boy Advance? I
1: actually don't remember um I th- think it had something to do with being able to see the map or maybe rather than having a heads up display it might have just kind of went on to being on the game boy itself um but yeah it was one of the yeah they they sold that whole connection even though I, <laughs> I mean I guess in hindsight it you know wasn't a, maybe maybe not the strongest use of it <laughs> if I just really
0: don't remember what it was but um Yeah. But even so, there was still, uh, just a a great amount of games from Nintendo and from other third party companies released for the Game Boy Advance. That was, that was a great era, a great solid era of uh, handheld gaming was the Game Boy Advance era, which uh, all began again on June 11th of 2001 as we kind of wrap up the video game, uh, two video game segments or portions of the blast from the past. But now the thing that uh, we do really want to talk about, it is a movie that was released to the masses on June 12th, 1981 distributed by 20th century Fox. It was directed by a comedic legend. It was produced by a comedic legend. It was written by a comedic legend. It was starring more than one comedic legends. This movie we're talking about now is history of the world. Part one. Yes.
1: I'd just like to basically first say with the big joke being there was no part two. (laughs) (laughs) That that was one big joke like built right into the title. But in terms of big jokes, it's not really surprising that there's going to be a lot of them because that comedic legend you're talking about was Mel Brooks, a man who basically, yeah, I, I, I feel that he like, he's getting the recognition I think he deserves now, but I'll say it like, I'll, yeah, I've, I've said it many times. I think he hasn't gotten the recognition he really truly deserves as a filmmaker because he makes comedy. And yeah, comedy for some reason in, you know, the the classic, you know, academy terms for some reason is just not as respectable as any of the other genres, even though arguably it's the hardest thing to nail and to make relevant and to keep being funny for a long time.
0: Yes. Over the span of an entire 90 to 120 minute experience, uh, as often as movies are, um, it's, it's hard to keep the, the audience engaged and still laughing all throughout. You have to consistently deliver new, different jokes to make people laugh all throughout the course of that experience.
1: I also mean, uh, sorry, in, in terms of that, that time comment, I also mean in the second way too, Comedy is arguably one of the form, like the the most susceptible forms of media to aging poorly. True enough, and I rewatch, you know, Mel Brooks movies not super frequently, but you know, every couple of years, I'll say, "Hey, I haven't seen this movie in a while." I'll watch this one, and I think, you know, in you know, with the exception of a couple of like maybe you know problematic things here and there,
0: they pretty much hold up. There's some sort of timeless quality to Mel Brooks' comedies. Yeah. And maybe it's because some of the bigger ones weren't really set in any sort of contemporary era.
1: Yeah. I think that's basically exactly it. I mean, it's kind of like um, how Conan O'Brien talks about how his favorite character to write – for on The Simpsons was Mr. Burns because they were able to get away with, like, ludicrous old references that were already crazy dated at the time of when they were, you know, writing the episode. So it's just like anything he says is just basically like, oh, it's an out-of-touch old man making old-timey references. These are really funny, and they're always going to be really funny in any future context. So it's almost like a future-proofing and, like, yeah. And I think it's like Mel Brooks really kind of understood that very well with almost all of his movies.
0: Yeah, I mean, look at uh, Blazing Saddles. It's an old Western. Look at uh, Young Frankenstein. Well, it's like a a 1930s-style horror movie, if you will. The History of the World Part One, not set in any one specific era. Yeah, it's literally
1: just the History of the World, the first part leading up until, (laughs) you know, well, it it goes off the rails. I mean, <laughs> there's there's parts of the movies, but yeah, it's uh, it gets up to the French Revolution, and then they just kind of go through the rest of history in terms of like, you know, like a series of mock teaser trailers. But yeah, I in terms of like the movie, it's if you've never seen it, I mean, obviously, I'm just going to s- start by saying if you're a fan of comedy, which if you're listening to our show, I'd like to think you probably have similar interest to us, so hopefully you're a fan of comedy um but th- if the film is basically like and, and i'll I'll recommend it very wholeheartedly still, but yeah, the film is basically five main vignettes each set in a different time, and they all kind of like they're not like they're connected because you know time is <laughs> you know linear, and we just kind of know how history generally went but they're all, like, there's there's similar elements to all of them,
0: and they're all hilarious. Yeah, there's not a bad segment to History of the World Part 1. Yeah, I mean, I,
1: I'm sure we each have our favorite segments, but uh there's definitely not a bad segment.
0: Like, th- there are memorable jokes to me that, that I still chuckle, chuckle about to this day from each of them. Uh, in, I believe it's the, uh, the Roman empire one. There's, there's a great Oedipus joke. Uh, yep. The, uh, the French revolution has a great one with Cloris Leachman. Actually has a couple with Cloris Leachman. Has, has many with Cloris Leachman, I'd say. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, hell even the, the trailers in coming attractions has some great bits. It's of, of all the classic Brooks comedies. I think this one is my particular favorite.
1: Yeah, this one is way up there for me. I mean, I don't know if I can, I can, you know, figure out which one between this one and Blazing Saddles is actually my favorite, but it's going to be one of these two, I think. But yeah, this one, super classic. I mean, yeah, I think my whole favorite segment in general is the French Revolution part. There's just, you know, so many, you know, <laughs> they, it's just also a thing that they often did, you know, making fun of just kind of like other languages in just a way where it's just like, (laughs) there's a, there's a point where like they're calling, uh, (laughs) like Mel, Mel Brooks plays two characters in that one. And one and one of the characters he plays is basically like it satirizes how ridiculous, you know, the, 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 the rich people in the, like, France back during that time were, and like how over the top the disparity between rich and poor was, obviously. But you know, one of the characters he played was basically the um, the person that like carried the the pee bucket around, the piss bucket around for you know the king and all of like the the people on the you know in the court of the king, and he was called the piss boy or you know, A.K.A. Uh, the garcon de Garçon de pisse, which is definitely not French. It's not real French, but it sounds like it, it's kind of, could be, you know? But yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It, yeah, the, the French Revolution, like particularly Cloris Leachman in the French Revolution is like, brilliant. But yeah. um, I think it's worth mentioning too, like in terms of like the cast, this is what I would consider like a classic, foundational twentieth-century, more like bringing comedy into the modern age cast. Because before them, there you know there were like you know, in terms of movie comedy, you had some of like the 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 people that laid the foundation, like the Marx Brothers and you know the, the Three Stooges and you know Abbott and Costello and stuff. But like really, the people that kind of brought the subversiveness of like how comedy kind of became a lot more subversive. I think after Mel Brooks made it that way with, you know, all these people, like you look at this cast, you're like, Oh yeah, that's why comedy became subversive because of these people. And obviously Mel Brooks, but also Dom DeLuise, Madeline Kahn, Harvey Corman, Clarence Leachman, like, you know, and then Sid Caesar, Jackie Green, and other people like Ron Carey, Pamela Stevenson, and Margaret, uh, Mary Margaret Humes and stuff like yeah, like great
0: cast. Really great cast. This is a stacked movie. An absolutely stacked movie uh because not only of the the leads you have uh differing from segment to segment but also the number of cameos that are thrown in as well all throughout. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh on top of it, Orson Welles, the great Orson Welles was the narrator of each segment. Yep. Just to just to make each segment that much more epic, uh at least epic sounding.
1: Yep. And also Carl Reiner was the voice of God. I just have like to point <laughs> that out. He was uncredited as such, but he was. Um, and yeah, and then just <laughs> you also saw B. Arthur, a young B. Arthur, I should say, in the unemployment office, as well as um like John Hurt was playing Jesus, which is like kind of bananas. <laughs> Yeah. There's,
0: there's, there's a whole lot going on. Yeah. Uh, history of the world part one is, uh, it strikes me as perhaps having the the quickest pace of comedy. There, there's no lulls, there's no drags. And that could just be because it's segment style as opposed to, uh, a singular narrative that is being told in a, a 90 minute experience. But, uh, yeah, of all the classic Brooks comedies, well, one, you're not going wrong with any of them, but two, this one, I think, is the one that made me the, laugh the hardest out of all of them. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think this one has the most, the, the the greatest density of jokes, because, I mean, he's he is covering a long period of time, and there's a lot to parody in terms of, like, all of human history. I mean, in a way, it's a shame he never got to make a part two, but... I like to think that that's part of, like, the joke. <laughs> it might not be part of the joke, but I like to think that that's, like, a great, like, extra joke. where it's, like, make a whole ridiculous movie, call it History of the World Part 1, and then just never make a second
0: part. <laughs> I yeah, I can easily see that being the case. Yeah. I mean, Mel Brooks is, uh, you know, a, a comedy genius slash crazy person, so... Hey, eh, you know, but he also never really did sequels either. No, he didn't. So that could also just be another a factor as well. Didn't want to repeat himself or retread uh, already worn uh, path and territory. So uh, regardless of what we're saying, the the, uh, the TLDR of it is uh, you need to watch Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1. It is 40 years old. If that is what gets you to watch it, and that's the reason that you come around to it, fantastic you're welcome uh perhaps someone has been you know needling you to watch it or whatnot or saying hey you should watch it and this is finally the last straw that brings you around to finally watching it so much the better you're not going to go wrong you're going to thank us for watching it and enjoying it it is 40 years old prior to that we spoke about the uh some actual video game related stuff uh we commented on the uh 10 year anniversary of Duke Nukem Forever, and also the 20 year anniversary of the Game Boy Advance. Uh, neither of those are as funny as History of the World Part 1. That's true. Uh, so with that being said, uh, I, I dare say that about wraps us up for this episode of the arcade. We thank you so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, and hope you can join us again for the next episode, which, again, I promise we'll have more E3 talk on it than what this episode have or what this episode had. Uh, I can assure you it will. So join us again for that. But if you have questions or comments, or if you wish to uh, quibble with us about how funny History of the World Part 1 is, you can email us info at thearcadeshow.com or hit us up on social media. We are at The Arcade Show on both Twitter and on Facebook. And if you haven't done so already, give yourself the gift or give someone else the gift of subscribing to this program. We are on iTunes. We are on Google Podcasts. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of the show.com. So that's all I have to say about now and uh simply we'll leave you with this until next time. Good night everybody. Good night. <laughs>